This program is a production of the Reformed Forum, an organization devoted to producing and distributing Reformed theological content for a connected age. Online at reformedforum.org. This is Christ the Center, episode number 267. Today we speak with Daryl Hart about the reorganization of Princeton Theological Seminary. Welcome to Christ the Center, Doctrine for Life, your weekly conversation of Reformed theology. This is episode number 267. And my name is Camden Busey. I'm recording here from Wheaton, Illinois. Uh, I'm very pleased to welcome back to the program. It's been a long time, but we're uh, very pleased and blessed to have with us again as a panelist, Jason Pickard. He's a graduate of Westminster Theological Seminary with an MDiv, but he's working with RUF International now at Texas A&M University. Welcome back, Jason. It's great to have you again. Hey, it's great to be here, Ken. Thanks. Well, you have Johnny Football down in Texas A&M. I, I suppose I'll call you right. J- Jason Theology. There we go. Okay. okay. My, thing, my son's name is John, so we can call him Johnny Theologian or something. <laughs> yes, that works. That works. Well, it's good uh, Good football days down in Texas A&M lately, so hopefully that continues. I know our friend Jonathan Brack will be happy, and we'll uh, yeah. give a big uh, hearty gig'em uh, to all the <laughs> Aggie fans. Uh, but we have uh, a guest with us who's been on the program before, and he's living in the great state of my football team, uh, the University of Michigan. Don't ask. We're very pleased to welcome back to the program Daryl Hart, who is visiting assistant professor of history at Hillsdale College in Hillsdale, Michigan. He's also written a number of books and articles on American Presbyterianism in particular, uh, specializing in J. Gresham Machen. Welcome back, Daryl. It's great to have you on again. Thanks for having me, Cabinet. Oh, we are we are very uh, pleased to welcome you back and to discuss a very important subject in the history of American Presbyterianism. We're going to be speaking today about the reorganization of Princeton Theological Seminary that happened not quite 100 years ago. Uh, Daryl has written an article in the Confessional Presbyterian Journal titled The Reorganization of Princeton Theological Seminary and the Exhaustion of American Presbyterianism, which I believe began as a... Uh, as an address uh, at a conference at Greenville uh, Theological Seminary. Um, But we'll get to that in a minute. Before we get into our subject, I do need to mention that Christ the Center, this program, is listener-supported. And we encourage you to visit us online at reformedforum.org slash donate to pledge your support today. We need more people to partner with us to help us to do all that we do. We have a number of exciting projects and programs lined up, including the recent release of Proclaiming Christ. We'd also like to spin philosophy for theologians back up and a couple other things, but we need your help. Please visit us online today at reformedforum.org slash donate. Thank you so much for your support of everything we do at Reformed Forum and this particular program, Christ the Center. Well, gentlemen, when I received this uh, copy, the the latest Confessional Presbyterian, Volume 8, uh, the 2012 edition, has a number of articles in here uh, about Princeton Theological Seminary. Last year, uh, 2012, was the 100th or 200th uh, anniversary of its founding. Is that correct, Daryl? Yes, it is, yes. And uh, that was celebrated, I believe, um, with a conference at Greenville uh, Theological Seminary. Is that correct, too? Yes, that's true. <laughs> Tell me about that conference and uh, some of the participants and, uh, and um, I guess, the reception of this uh, lecture at the conference. How did it go? Uh, uh, well, it was an uh, interesting event. The uh, I think most of the seminary uh, students, faculty... 
family showed up, but then also uh, contingent from that part of um, the southeastern United States. And I, I remember Carl Truman presenting on Warfield, and oh, I can't remember everyone else. I got I have my copy of the uh, Confessional Presbyterian yeah. here somewhere, but um, well, we just interviewed Paul Helseth on uh, Right Reason right. and the Science right. of Theology at Old Princeton. So he's uh, he was there as well, I believe. Fred Zaspel, it looks like on Princeton and yeah. Evolution. Well, I, I, he actually couldn't make it, but it's, oh. his, they, someone else presented his papers as I re- and I had to show up partway through the conference because I was teaching here. But anyway, um, Excellent. so it was, it was an enjoyable uh, time and uh, my first time at Greenville or, or in, a, in a function connected with the, the institution. Mm-hmm. Well, there's plenty more uh, articles in this issue of the Confessional Presbyterian. If you're interested in picking one up, I suppose I should mention you can find them at cpjournal.com. And uh, it's a useful volume, a lot of great material in here. Uh, that that you're going to be reading uh, for many many hours, good stuff that'll occupy your mind uh, for for time to come. Um, of course, I, we have a, a wide range of listeners, a lot of Presbyterians, a lot of people that'll be familiar with the history that I'm speaking about, this reorganization of Princeton Theological Seminary. But there will be other people that are new to the subject and, and others that are, are Baptists or Congregationalists or uh, Christians of different stripes or non-Christians that uh, are not going to be familiar. Uh, Daryl, could you rehearse just this, uh, quite basically what happened in 1929 at a very high level before we start to look into the particulars that brought this reorganization about. Right. Well, the reorganization of Princeton Seminary in 1929 more or less um, was the culmination of at least the first stage of controversies within the Presbyterian Church in the United States of America, the, the Northern Presbyterian Church, which is the governing body of Princeton Seminary to this day. Uh, Princeton Seminary was founded as an agency of the General Assembly of the Church, and it still was during the 1920s. And so there had been controversies within the Church um, over liberalism and conservatism. J. Gerson Machen emerged as the, um, the, the probably the most public and popular spokesperson for the conservatives that led to an investigation of Princeton Seminary and, an, and a plan to reorganizing it, to reorganize the seminary, which occurred in 1929. What the reorganization did was to um, to change the uh, direct board of directors at the school and make the conservatives a minority mm. in the governance of the school. And at that point, Machen um, wouldn't abide the changes and founded Westminster Seminary that same year, 1929. Wow. So there's a lot going on there, a lot of legalities, um, a yes, lot of questions actually, about why this happened, I assume. For two years, actually, the the, the initial report to rec- that recommended um, the reorganization came to the General Assembly in 1927, I believe, and, and then lawyers uh, kept it uh, from happening for two years as both sides, parties, argued that it was either constitutional or unconstitutional, both according to church law, but as well as New Jersey state law. And so, uh, from one angle, there, there's a lot of questions about what's going on here with the reorganization, but um, if I get this correct, Daryl, please correct me if I'm wrong, that uh, there were two boards. There was a board of directors, which I believe oversaw academics, and a board of trustees that oversaw the rest of the affairs at the seminary, and they decided to create 
one board uh, from the two. So they took a third of the new board members from the directors, a third from the trustees, and then a third from a new bunch. Is that correct? Uh, yes. And right. so basically, I, I, I guess the significance here is is why this happened, but also um, the shift in power between uh, conservatives and uh, progressives or modernists, whatever word we want to use there. And that's what we're going to unfold uh, today in our episode, trying to describe uh, why this happened and what its great significance was. Um, Daryl, one thing I really appreciate uh, that you you and uh, John Meather have done, especially, is your book, uh, Seeking a Better Country, 300 Years of American Presbyterianism. I, I know Jason's read that book and uh, has also uh, remarked on, on how useful it is. Um, and one thing you do there is, is really trace American Presbyterianism from its beginnings. Uh, we're not going to go all the way back there, but pretty close. Um, could you speak a little bit about John Witherspoon and his significance as an early American Presbyterian in order to uh, lay the foundation or, or start to describe the climate or environment out of which Old Princeton arose? Right. I mean, Witherspoon is a is an enigmatic figure, and a lot he a lot of people have studied him, and he is of course the only pastor clergyman to sign the Declaration of Independence, um, and he came to America, North America, in 1768 to preside over the College of New Jersey, which is now known today as Princeton University, and he was in some ways a compromise candidate between the um, old side and new side uh, controversy that had split the colonial church between 1741 and 1758, um, but... but um, Witherspoon had been an Part, a member of the Evangelical Party in the Church of Scotland had um, so he was he was regarded as conservative. He had proved himself to be that way by by writing some pieces mocking some of the moderates or liberals in the Church of Scotland. So he looked like a, a good fit, and then he um, he he just fit right in into the British colonies by uh, embracing the cause of of liberty. And he preached a sermon. In 1775, um, that is reproduced practically everywhere in the founding documents of the United States, um, and it was circulated, I believe, by the Continental Congress. And he makes some rather startling um, claims in there about sectarianism and, and, but likening denominational differences to sectarianism. So obviously, he's trying to rally everyone to the side of independence uh from Great Britain but um but it's it's odd that a man who was in many respects a solid committed presbyterian would also say these things about denominational differences it's it's not at all unusual it's happened many times throughout church history as well as american church history but but it it does it seems to me it does um send an early signal for the Presbyterian Church USA, and and Witherspoon was a big uh, had a big hand in creating the first General Assembly, trying to create a national structure for the Presbyterian Church, um, and, and so at the very beginning, at the at, almost on the ground floor, you have a kind of civil religion, better perhaps than a lot of other kinds of civil religion throughout the history of the United States, but a kind of civil civil religion that is informing. The Presbyterian Church, and it is still striking to me that that the church would adopt the name that it does by putting the the name of the of the nation in its own name. Um, 
it's not unusual for other churches to do that as well, although <clears throat> other churches might choose North America or just America, but here it's full-blown United States of America. And, and again, it, it does suggest that the the origins of the First General Assembly and when the denomination becomes a national structure, that it's very much identified with the nation itself. Yeah, that... and, and I think that carries over then throughout the history of the Church, so that even even conservatives in the Church are going to have a sort of double-mindedness about serving the nation and serving the kingdom of God, and maybe have to do some fudging to make that work. <laughs> so um, can you d- also describe for us the founding then of Old Princeton and, and situate that uh, against the life of, of Witherspoon? Just uh, Where is sure. this happening and, and when for the, for the listeners? Well, um, Witherspoon is actually in some ways responsible for the kind of um, dissatisfaction with the College of New Jersey, which was, even though not a denominationally run school, was pretty much the Presbyterians' college. But in the era, I mean, someone like James Madison trained under, studied under Witherspoon. And, and the college during the late decades of the, of the uh, 8th, 18th century gained the reputation for turning out more pol- politicians than ministers. And anyone who wants to read more about this, uh, arguably Mark Knoll's best book is called Princeton and the Republic, and it's about the College of New Jersey during this era of Witherspoon's presidency and then his successor, Samuel Stanhope Smith. And it's also a very important study of the kind of political theology that's going on in the the new nation and how Presbyterians fit in with that. It's a precursor in many respects to America's God, but it's more succinct and in some ways more accessible than, than Knowles' big book, America's God. So anyway... There's this dissatisfaction in the Presbyterian Church with the College of New Jersey, and they're not producing ministers. So eventually, um, there's a proposal to to have a seminary, which was a relatively novel institution for Protestants and, and in, Amer- in America as well. And so, uh, the fir- one of the first seminaries was Andover Seminary, founded in 1808, in reaction to changes at um, Harvard Divinity School. So Presbyterians. Convince the General Assembly to found the Princeton uh, Seminary in 1812, and it it is now going to be the the source for ministers for the Presbyterian Church. Now, eventually, it won't be the only source because there there will be other uh, seminaries founded by synods or by uh, maybe in some cases presbyteries within the Presbyterian Church. But Princeton is the oldest and the one that has the Initially, the direct um, imprimatur of the General Assembly, and it's and again, it's the reason is because they need they need ministers for this expanded nation. I think at one point in say eighteen fifteen, there may be the figure something like one hundred ministers for four hundred congregations or something like that. That may be off. It's been a while since I've looked at my notes, but it's it's some kind of odd proportion like that. So there really was a, a need for more clergy or more pastors. Yeah, I think that's about right. If I if I recall recently, I read an article to the effect it's one in three or one in four. It was yeah. it was it was really a problem. <laughs> right. Um, what happened at Princeton? How how successful was it? Uh, maybe between eighteen twelve and nineteen twenty two, for instance. Uh, what were some of the some of the shifts, or how did it grow right. and develop and meet meet these challenges? 
Uh, well, very small institution at first. Um, only three faculty through, say, 1830. The, the original faculty were Archibald Alexander, Samuel Smith, um, Samuel Miller, excuse me, and um, and Charles Hodge was the third. And and the um, but Princeton did hold on to Reformed Orthodoxy. I would argue better than most other Reformed seminaries in the in the United States, partly because they were using Turretin for so long until they uh, started to assign Hodge. Until Hodge produces systematics, um, <clears throat> Princeton came out on the side of the old school Presbyterians in the split in 1837, somewhat reluctantly, but still clearly on that side in defending the decisions that went into the old school, which was to reject the New Haven theology that was fairly prominent in some new school circles, um, a kind of parachurch, a preference for parachurch agencies that also was associated with the Second Great Awakening. Um, and, 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 and in fact, in some cases, New School Presbyterians were also rejecting the federal theology of the Westminster Standard. So Princeton stood with the old school on that and became, in fact, pretty much the only old school seminary in the North. Most of the old school strength was in the in the southern parts of, of the United States. Um, and so when you get to 1869 and the old school and new school are coming back together, um, Hodge is still there and he's still arguing against a reunion because he thinks that the new school never adequately addressed the problems that were in its ranks. Uh, but by that point, it's a whole new wave of, of Presbyterians, a whole new generation of ministers are in the church. And so the opposition to the reunion in 1869 is a very small one. And for a lot of people in conservative Presbyterian circles today, they look at the old school, new school, and myself included, the old school, new school reunion as, as a real important turning point in the history of Presbyterianism. And and in, in some ways, the loss of that old school voice that probably, I think, if there was or were a golden age of American Presbyterianism, and I don't like speaking of golden ages because it's, <laughs> it, it's always a church militant. There are always all sorts of problems in the church. But can, you have a num- maybe a dozen, at least a dozen uh, theologians, um, seminarians, seminary faculty who are, who are teaching and expounding Reformed Orthodoxy, teaching a high view of the church, teaching sound convictions about worship, and, and good, solid churchmen to boot. And... Um, so uh, that's why a lot of these uh, men's writings are still in print, um, and thankfully, Banner of Truth has kept a number of them in print as well, even some some of the more obscure ones. So it, it really was a great period, and Princeton was part of that old-school uh, tradition. One thing you've mentioned before in, in classes and lectures, <laughs> and also even in this article, is the history of Presbyterianism seen through two cities, mainly New York and Philadelphia. And most of the time you, you, you say what comes from New York is usually bad, <laughs> and right. what comes from Philadelphia is oftentimes <laughs> good. Princeton itself is, is geographically roughly in between the two. How uh, was it caught in the middle of, of some of these developments leading up to, and then I guess beginning in 1922? Well, in some ways you can trace that all the way back to the... Um the colonial era, mm. where Princeton is in the Presbytery of New Brunswick, which was a presbytery created to give 
the new side ministers like Gilbert Tennant, who was a fairly fiery preacher at the time, and not really abiding, <clears throat> pardon me, the rules well of, of the Presbyterian Church. Um, so this was, the Presbytery of New Brunswick was sort of a release valve for a lot of the hot-minded um, uh, revivalists. And um, and so it has a, it has a, a new side pro-revival, in some ways anti-ecclesiastical tinge from its beginning, and yet that's where Princeton Seminary is located, and most of its faculty through the years are members of that presbytery. Um, <clears throat> so, uh, and it's situated midway between Philadelphia and Princeton, and, I mean, Philadelphia and New York, and, but I think in some ways the, 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 the balance of power is with New, well, it it depends on where the headquarters of the Presbyterian Church are. If the headquarters are in Philadelphia, um, it's it maybe Philadelphia has more weight with Princeton. But if if when headquarters shift to New York, um, it's going to have more uh, balance. The balance of power will shift there, because again, Princeton is a, is an agency of the General Assembly, and so in in the tw- in 1920s by that point the headquarters for the Presbyterian Church were located more directly in, in New, York City, even, New York City, even though Philadelphia itself still had, at the Witherspoon Building there at uh, Chancellor Street and Walnut, this great building of the, um, the Sabbath School oh, yeah. Board and, and Presbyterian Publications, some agency like that. It's, it's, um, I think for a while it was more or less the headquarters for the Presbyterian Church, and then it eventually became mainly the publication center for the Presbyterian Church, when I think the stated clerk and other officers in the church would have been in New York City. Um, But, so Princeton was old school, but still caught in some ways, caught up in the politics of the church. And and I and I think uh, it was it was never going to escape that, and the reorganization of 1929 was very much proof of that. I'm just curious about is the you know the close connection between going back to Witherspoon between the church and state is that a carryover from his uh, days in Scotland? Um, that's that is unclear, and I'm actually hoping um, in 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 days ahead to uh, look at Presbyterian politics in Scotland, Northern Ireland, and North America and see uh, how it plays out because there are at least three strands of or four strands of Presbyterianism, uh, well, three, during, between the, the late 17th century and the, the American Revolution, where you have Scottish, the Kirk, Kirk itself, and so the people who are ministers who are in the church itself have to take a certain view of the state, given that they are part of the establishment. But you have covenanters who, 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 will, who won't go into the Kirk, and they're going to remain separate, and they have their own view of, of the state and the importance of the National Covenant. And then you have the associate Presbyterians, led by the Erskine brothers. They leave the church in 1733, and they also have their own uh, understanding of politics and the relationship between church and state. And so um, um, Witherspoon himself is coming out of Scotland, um, and he's coming out of the, the Kirk, the established church, so I don't know if he represents some kind of mainstream view among evangelicals in the Scottish Church or not. And that's, I think, something that would be very interesting to map out. I was recently in Ireland 
over um, the Thanksgiving uh, week and spent some time in Northern Ireland and in the Republic and became aware of um, huge Presbyterian involvement in politics in Ireland, which is not unusual or, or not surprising to anyone who follows the, who followed the troubles in Northern Ireland and the um, the involvement of someone like Ian Paisley in the politics of, of relationships between Roman Catholics and Protestants in Northern Ireland. But um, so I, it's a long-winded answer to say I'm not sure, but I also, again, Witherspoon is one of these enigmatic figures, and the historians that I've read of him on his politics um, don't easily situate him in some in Scottish uh, views of church-state relations or um, relationship even of Scotland to England in the United Kingdom. Thank you. And just uh, one more question. I was just thinking about the early days of Princeton and what kind of paved the way for these shifts. I, I've read before at the centennial of Princeton Seminary that people were already sounding a warning about changes going on. So there was this development. Obviously, things don't happen all at once. But how long were these internal d- discussions going on and tensions starting to emerge? Do we know any of that? Well, um in in 1909, I believe it was, there was a student rebellion because they didn't care for the the curriculum at Princeton. Around 19, I guess around the, the centennial, there, Princeton also finally, the seminary finally um, appoints its first president, and um, and so that's that's an indication of some changes there. I believe the first president was Francis Landy Patton, who was a solid uh, conservative uh, Presbyterian thinker and pastor. Um, but if you read about Warfield's involvement in, in many of these debates, he, he was very much worried about what was happening to the seminary during these, during the, these periods and curriculum revisions that were being forced on the faculty in the light of these student rebellions, but also... Warfield was also very much worried about the Presbyterian Church that was sponsoring and overseeing the seminary because of the revisions to the uh, Westminster Standards that had been going on in, during the 1890s and, and um, the first decade of the 20th century. And uh, Warfield opposed them, but he wasn't able to persuade enough people to prevent those revisions from happening. And that those revisions were responsible for the merger between um, the the PCUSA, the Northern Church, and the Cumberland Presbyterians, who were probably the least Calvinistic of Presbyterian uh, churches in the, in the United States. Hmm. So there were a lot of there was a lot of muddy water uh, swirling around the seminary, and um, uh, that the seminary held out as long as it did as part of the uh, part of mainstream Protestantism after the Civil War, especially, is fairly remarkable. Hmm. Now, of course, we can't speak much about uh, New York and uh, American Presbyterianism in the 1920s without talking about Harry Emerson Fosdick. Could you uh, explain some of his role in uh, the precipitation of all these events? Uh, Who was he and what was his uh, influence upon Presbyterianism? He was probably the most popular liberal preacher, Protestant preacher, of the first half of the 20th century. Uh, He was a Baptist, and and the way that he became an issue for Presbyterians was that he was the stated supply preacher at First Presbyterian Church in New York. So you could well wonder why a Presbyterian church would have a Baptist minister as its pastor. 
And you could also well wonder why they'd have a liberal um, preacher as their pastor, as stated supply. Um, and what, what's also interesting, though, is that the sermon that he preaches in 1922, entitled Shall the Fundamentalist Win?, um, I think he's actually preaching at Baptist in that at that point because the word fundamentalism actually its origins are in debates between among Baptists both southern and northern in the late um, teens and early twenties. In fact, uh, one of the editors of, of a Southern Baptist newspaper, Curtis Lee Laws, I believe, is responsible for coming up with the name fundamentalism. And so I think Fosdick was addressing those issues um, in, in Baptist circles, even though he was preaching from a Presbyterian pulpit. But the kind of case that he made there then about this, uh, about fundamentalism and how it was going, it was turning out all sorts of good people from the church, how inerrancy and, and the virgin birth of Christ were not nearly as important as some of the world issues facing uh, the United States and, and other nations trying to keep peace and restore order after World War I. Um, and he called for greater tolerance in the church. I mean, these were things that were red meat for conservatives who were worried about where the church was going. So I think unintentionally, unwittingly, Fosdick ended up creating a controversy in the Presbyterian Church. I think he had, I think he had intended to create one among the Baptists, but he didn't realize what was coming among Presbyterians. So in, right away... Overtures from Philadelphia are coming to the General Assembly to remedy this situation in New York City. Hmm. What happened in 1925? What was the special commission that occurred at that time? Well, on the heels of um, Fosdick's sermon, the Presbytery of New York also ordained two men to the ministry who would not affirm the virgin birth. They did not deny it, but they would not affirm it. And this was um, a very controversial matter, not simply because of the importance of the virgin birth to Christian orthodoxy, but also because the Presbyterian Church had already been on record going back to 1892 as declaring the virgin birth, along with inerrancy and vicarious atonement and a couple other doctrines, as being essential and necessary for ministry in the Church. there were questions about whether the General Assembly had the power to declare these these doctrines as essential and necessary, and this goes all the way back to the Adopting Act of 1729 and, and, and what that act meant. But, but still, the Church was on record as the virgin birth being essential and necessary, and so if the Presbytery of New York was going to ordain men who would not affirm the virgin birth, then they were in violation of what the General Assembly decided. So that played out over the course of three years. Eventually, there was almost a split in the Church in 1925, where once again the uh, Assembly affirmed the virgin birth as an essential and necessary article. The liberals in New York, both in the Synod of New York and the Presbytery, were willing to uh, at least according to some memoirs, willing to consider starting a new Presbyterian denomination, which is something that actually Machen argued for uh, in Christian and liberalism. He thought that there really should be a separation of the two parties, the liberals and the, and the, the conservatives. Um, but Charles Erdman intervened at that moment. He was the moderator of the General Assembly of 1925, did not want to see the church split. He was also, for people who don't know this, a, a, 
a professor at Princeton Theological Seminary and well-regarded as an evangelical, not as an old-school Presbyterian, but still as as conservative. He was an editor of The Fundamentals, which was a series of tracts published in the teens that defended certain doctrines of the faith. He wrote a, a, a glowing biography, small one of Dwight Moody, so he was pro-evangelism, pro-revivalism. He was also premillennial of some kind. So he was by no means a liberal, and yet he also didn't want to see the church split. So he appointed a commission in 1925 to study what was dividing the church, even though for a lot of people at Princeton it was very obvious what was dividing the church. But he was hoping for a different answer, and that commission eventually came back with its report and argued a lot of different things, argued for greater charity in the church, argued for how good the church was in so many ways, and also had an implicit warning to conservatives that they needed to cut it out. They needed to stop criticizing people because they were in danger of being um, libelous. Um, So it was a very, very important moment in the, um, that turned, I think, really turned the Presbyterian controversy away from conservatives. And at, at that point, once that commission came back with its report, it, in my reading of the, the history, um, the cause of conservatism was, was pretty much over. But it took a while still for it to play out and to spill over onto Princeton Seminary. And I do think the effects of that, that report calling for unity, greater charity in the church, was also an, an impetus for reorganizing Princeton and trying to tone down any controversy that was happening there at the seminary. And you might imagine there was controversy going on there since some of their faculty were very much opposing what the commission was doing, and some of their faculty, like Erdman, were responsible for creating that commission. Well, clearly you you mentioned that there is... um a controversy in that people were aware at, at Princeton, people were aware of what divided uh, the different factions and parties in the denomination. Um, was the reorganization of Princeton that eventually came about, was that viewed as a solution to this or was it incidental uh, to that? No, it was, process? it was viewed as a, as a solution. Um, it, 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 there's a long history. It's, it's really quite striking. Um, there's a long history in the Presbyterian church of, basically redistricting presbyteries uh, to avoid controversies. It happened, well, it happened in the creation of the Presbytery of New Brunswick in 1738, where, okay, we have these revivalists who are fairly worked up about the importance of these revivals. If we give them a presbytery, maybe they'll they'll play on their own and and won't create controversy in other parts of the Church. Um, After reorganization, or the reunion of the old side and new side in 1758, there were still lingering controversies between the two sides. And again, I believe in Philadelphia, there was an effort to redraw presbytery lines to accommodate those, those, um, those differences. In the 1830s, when old schoolers and new schoolers are going at it in, in Philadelphia, there's a creation of two presbyteries to try to alleviate the situation and then going even beyond 1929, there, there, um, conservatives are still active in the Presbytery of Philadelphia and the Presbytery of Chester, which is in southeastern Pennsylvania. And there, the General Assembly between 1936 and 1938 redraws the Presbytery lines so that conservatives again lose the majority 
in those presbyteries. So what happens with the, the um, reorganization of Princeton in 1929 is a redrawing of administrative lines, hoping again to quell the controversy in the church. Um, so they did think it would solve the problem, and, if, and in fact it did in a way, I mean, because Machen left, although that led to a whole other series of controversies in the 1930s, and whether Westminster really was had a place in the church, and that, of course, that gets complicated with the controversy over missions and the formation of an independent board for Presbyterian foreign missions, which is outside the scope of the article that I wrote. But um, so the the controversy gets a second wind in the in the in the 1930s, but um, in effect, the reorganization did solve the problem at, at Princeton. Now, cl- um, clearly, there are many historians and, and people today in, in a variety of uh, Reformed Presbyterian churches that see this reorganization as a process or an action of the liberal or modernist-leaning group to uh, shift the balance of power in their favor um, other people may dispute that. Um, how has Princeton itself interpreted this action, both then and now? Well, then they interpreted it as, as an ad, merely a, an administrative change. And there's a certain sense in which that is, is true and fair. But it also goes with the, the broader denial in the Presbyterian Church, of the real theological issues that were before the Church. And if you have the idea of whether the virgin birth was actually part of Christian orthodoxy, part of the teaching of Scripture, part of the teaching of the Westminster Confession, whether there could be room for uh, error on that, um, you obviously have theological problems that the Church really didn't want to grapple with. After reorganization... And and once um, John Mackay becomes uh, the president in roughly 1937, Princeton actually remains one of the more conservative institutions within the Presbyterian Church USA by virtue, if you want to consider Bardianism, uh, conservative. But compared to liberalism or compared to modernism, or even compared to other kind of generic Protestantisms, Bardianism was far more... Uh, in interacting with um, teachings of Calvin and and um, and Zwingli and other reformers and Heidelberg Catechism and the the uh, Reformed Orthodoxy of the 16th to 17th century. So, uh, as Princeton begins to hire people who are Bardian in training or Bardian in the background, and they can do that throughout the late 30s and 1940s, because there are. European scholars who are looking for somewhere out of another war-torn Europe. So Princeton becomes this home for some European Bardian refugees during this period and really does is, is identified in many respects with New Orthodoxy in America. But again, there is this New York, um, well, not Philadelphia, but Princeton split because there's another kind of New Orthodoxy in New York that's associated with, with Reinhold Niebuhr and Union Seminary, which is not the same thing as the the higher octane theology, it seems to me, of of Bardianism, where I think Bart's Bardian, Bardians were actually trying to interact with Reformed doctrine and dogma, whereas Niebuhr, 
and the the new orthodoxy in New York were more ethical, more political, certainly way more political than than Bart ever was. So, um, you know, ironically, Princeton does become a, a conservative voice in the PCUSA, not conservative as many of those conservative Presbyterians outside the PCUSA would construe it, but but still, because of this influence of Bart at Princeton, it's a it's a more conservative place than other Presbyterian institutions. And in some ways, you could argue that still is the case to this day. Well, Doctor, we know that uh, in the years leading up to this, Machen had uh, written his famous book, Christianity and Liberalism. And we just tell us for a few minutes about how important that book was in this whole discussion. Um, well, it was um, probably. Arguably the most important book Machen read. It's, it's it's likely the book that that he wrote that's still read, um, and it came right in 1923 at a time when the Presbyterian controversy was probably the hottest it was, um, and Machen himself wrote the book in some ways less with what had happened with Fosdick or the Presbytery of, of New York than with what happened in 1920 when he was a commissioner to the General Assembly. And there was a report there before the General Assembly to uh, for a plan that would unite all of the Protestant denominations in an organic union of churches. And it was called a plan for organic union. And at that point, the churches were, ha- were part of a federated union, meaning they belonged to the Federal Council of Churches. So there was a just as the early American United States were part of a feder- confederation or a federation of states where a lot of the states still had a lot of authority, um, the, the churches had a similar relationship with the founding of the Federal Council of Churches in 1908. They still had a lot of authority, but now people wanted to have a much more much closer union and have one united church. And I think they were going to call it the United Protestant Church of America or something like that. And there was a similar church founded in, in 1925 in Canada, the United Church of Canada, which, which brought Anglicans, Methodists, and Presbyterians together. Well, Machen thought that was a terrible idea to unite all the churches like this, because he, he, he basically said, well, you're, you're denying the legitimacy of a Presbyterian witness, that somehow Presbyterianism is, is no better, no worse than Baptist or Congregational or Methodist, all the other churches that are participating in this union. Um, so he was very much alarmed by that. A number of other Prince of Faculty were. Benjamin Warfield also wrote against the plan of organic union. Um, and so Machen actually at that point began to network with other conservatives in the Philadelphia and Pennsylvania area, and he gave some talks based on his opposition to the plan of union. And one of those talks eventually went into print in Princeton Theological Review, and it became the backbone for Christianity and liberalism. So, in effect, what Machen is really writing against in Christianity and liberalism is the kind of Protestant ecumenism that was going on, which was had very little regard, if any, for doctrine. And it was also based very much on trying to, to project a, a social gospel or Christianize America, uh, through these united churches, and so he's also writing against that. That doesn't mean that he wasn't also opposed to Fosdick or what was happening in the Presbytery of New York, but I think it's it's very interesting to see 
the uh, the backdrop of what happened in 1920 and that plan of organic union as um, as a as a basis for what Machen wrote. Um, but of course, it it went beyond that and it it be, it promoted him uh, before the wider public, and he became in some ways a celebrity after that book, but also some other circumstances that happened to make that book prominent. So so that when people wanted somebody to speak for the fundamentalist or conservative point of view in the debates of the day, he was he was very much the go-to guy for editors and conference uh, organizers and the like. Machen was the stated supply at, at First Church Princeton in the six, last six months of 1923, and um, his last sermon there on the last Sunday of 1923, he preached a sermon that in some ways has looks like a a, a shout down to uh Harry Emerson Fosdick and the and the earlier sermon that he preached, Shall the Fundamentalist Win. Um and I'm not sure that's the best exegesis in the sermon, but uh he does <laughs> he does score a number of other, number of very important points about the need for orthodoxy in the church, but also the need for liberty in society. And you have to distinguish between the church and society when you're thinking about liberty and intolerance or not. Um, but it, it, it very much um, enraged one of the church members there, Henry Van Dyke, who was formerly a professor of English at, at, at Princeton University and also an ambassador to the Netherlands during the Wilson administration. So he resigned his pew, but he held a press conference to resign his pew. And, and in <laughs> doing so, he he pointed to what he called the bilious preaching of J. Gresson Machen, um, and so Machen's sermon then that was that sort of pushed Van Dyke over the edge ended up being reproduced in newspapers around America in in ways similar to the way that Fosdick's sermon had been reproduced back in, in 1922. So that really did probably make him more of a celebrity than um, than the book, but it also forced people to read read the book because Fosdick didn't have a book to go with his. Um, his sermon the way Machen now did with Christian liberalism. Right, right. Yeah, it's so often the case that these books are end up being cornerstones or capstones or places for people to go and people to latch onto. I could see how that would be the case for right. Machen. This uh this uh, dispute with Henry Van Dyke um illustrates that this debate was not just simply an academic one happening, you know, within a denomination amongst the clergy or even within uh, the seminary amongst academics. Did this uh, climate uh, uh, spill out uh, between pastors and, and uh, lay people alike in the Princeton community? I wish I knew the answer to that. And, and um, I think that would be a, a great uh, either thesis or dissertation uh, topic um, to identify the church members there in Princeton and the relationship between the, the university and the seminary and how that, how that played out in that congregation of First Presbyterian Church. There were other congregations in town as well. Um, and, and I'm sure you could go to, to, to correspondence and even maybe some memoirs or diaries and, and get, get a whiff of some of that. But unfortunately, I, I just I don't know. Hmm. That would be an interesting study for someone to yeah. do. Maybe there's yeah. an enterprising young student out there who'd like to take that up. <laughs> no, because you have some very prominent 
people in that in that congregation mm-hmm. who 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 are many of them uh, academics or professors at at Princeton. So it would be um, a window in a number of of um, themes and subjects. Mm. So, Dr. Hart, kind of a, along those lines, and maybe it's a little obvious by now, but with the way Presbyterianism in America developed, reaching middle upper class people, professors, politicians. Did just the concern to keep up with the cultural elite and to appeal to its constituency just overtake itself? Could you say that again? Does it what? Sure, just you know, the, you have a lot of uh, high players in society, so to speak. So did there creep into the church this concern that we have to keep up with these cultural elite people with our message and our theology? Yes, I, I think that's I think that's the case, and I'm not sure when it happens. Uh, um, I mean, for for instance, when um, Samuel Miller is writing about the manners of ministers uh, in the maybe 18-teens, 1820s, and he's talking about, you know, ways to dis- to use your handkerchief or, you know, ways to talk to ladies. I mean, in in, in some ways, it's 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 good to have manners, and and you know, I'm sure there we've all encountered ministers who maybe could have better manners. <laughs> but on the other hand, when you're when you're styling your ministry to to go after the manners of a particular class or leadership group in a society, um, you you clearly could lose touch with with other people. So that it's happening early on, conceivably, for and Presbyterians aren't the only ones guilty of this. Um, other other denominations are as well. But then after the Civil War and the reunion of the old school and new schools. Um, I, I continue to be struck by how many immigrants came to America between 1870 and 1920. Uh, and you really don't have any reform of immigration law in America until 1924. And a lot of the, the, the Anglo-American Protestants in the, the denominations all coming having a British background, Presbyterians, Baptists, Congregationalists, Methodists, Episcopalians, um, they don't know what to do with all these these teeming masses yearning to be free, especially when they are a little swarthier than they were before, and they're coming and they're not Protestant, and so they're trying to hold on to a version of America that's much more English and Protestant, or at least Northern European, than it's becoming in the late 19th century, thanks to these immigrants that are coming. I mean, it's, it's staggering. You have more immigrants coming in one decade, say the 1880s or the first decade of, of the 20th century, than you had the entire population of America in, say, 1860. I think it's something like that, it's, wow. it's, or maybe 1850. But it's, it's remarkable how many people the United States took in during those periods. And it's understandable why, why Protestants would not know what to do with all these people. And they're, and they're going into cities, oftentimes living in very desperate situations and conditions and working in, in also deplorable circumstances, oftentimes in various kinds of industry. So it, again, it's understandable why Protestants would be concerned about this. But if you, again, you try to start to turn your, your ministry into one that's more social than it than it is actually spiritual. Um, that you, you, it's a recipe, I think, for what happened. I, I think in the 1920s. Other people would disagree with that interpretation that I give, but I still think, still think that's the case. 
How fast was the turnaround from the reorganization of Princeton, or I should say transition, then to Westminster Theological Seminary? Uh, what was the timeline uh, from when Machen left and, and then started hiring people and uh, creating an entirely new seminary? Well, uh, on the surface, it was from early June to September. Hmm. Now, he had to—I didn't see this much in the correspondence, but it's been a while now, so I may not be remembering well my, my graduate school days. But <laughs> um, but he, he must have had other plans in view in case the reorganization went through. But still, it was so it was virtually three and a half months to get this, to get a, facilities, faculty, curriculum, just, just to produce a catalog, publicity materials, um, it, it has some kind of workable library for students to use. It's a remarkable accomplishment that they could do that in, in such, what, 15 weeks, roughly. Yeah. It's mm-hmm. really, really astounding. Yeah. My. Now, uh, you know, we can, we can look and analyze more at, at, at what actually happened here with the reorganization, but one thing we don't always... Um, focus on or don't always explore, at least on our programs here at Christ the Center here. What what happened in the aftermath? Um, we like to start to pick up the story uh, with Westminster and, and then start to trace, uh, you know, NAPARC-style developments that have happened, a uh, more conservative side of, of Reformed and Presbyterian uh, history. What happened at Princeton in the decade following the reorganization, for instance? Um, well, I think it was, um, my sense is that it, it was a, um, an institution that, that had lost a lot of its vitality. Uh, you had people still, uh, conservatives still teaching there, like Voss, like Casper Wister Hodge, like William Park Armstrong, Machen's colleague in, in New Testament, who had been his mentor. Um, but they were at the end of their careers, and, and within the first, Four years, I think, of the 1930s, all of them have, have retired, um, and the people that they hired to replace them, um, I, I, the, I, I didn't do a lot of work in looking at, at them, but they didn't, they aren't people's whose names I recognized, and so it, it just seems like Princeton really lost a lot of its stature after the founding of, of Westminster, and it, it it takes until Mackay comes to, to be president in roughly 1937, that, that Princeton then begins to pick up some energy, intellectual excitement again. So there's a, there's a period of maybe eight years where it's, it's, it feels like it's in the doldrums. Um, and then, and then they, they begin to, to get some momentum back. But, but it, it, in some ways, it never really recovers what it, it maybe was in the 19-teens and 20s, when you remember that places like Fuller Seminary, which comes along in 1947, or Gordon Conwell Seminary, which becomes a merged institution in the 1960s, they to this day are producing, each of them are producing more Presbyterian ministers than all of the Presbyterian seminaries put together. Hmm. So, in many respects, the energy and theological, Presbyterian theological education is still not in the official Presbyterian institutions. It's, it's, it's in evangelical, so-called evangelical seminaries. It's remarkable. 
Dr. Hart, do we have any idea of why some of the, more of the conservatives didn't come with Machen to Westminster? I mean, like a guy like Voss, for instance. Right. Was he not, was he not invited to come, or do we know any? Oh, I think they were invited. Um, I'm almost positive they were invited, but I think the real issue was one of pensions. In Gary North's book, I don't recommend Gary North a lot, but Gary North's book, Cross Fingers, which is on the Presbyterian controversy, and he does the financial angle on it all. And when you have, you know, if you think about it yourself, if you're within two or three years of retirement and you're going to potentially lose all of your pension mm-hmm. if you leave the institution, I mean, that's a that's an incredible sacrifice to make. Um, Machen himself was independently wealthy because of of money on both sides of his family. So he, he not only, only could afford to take the risk, but he could also help to underwrite part of the seminary. I'm not sure about Robert Dick Wilson, who died within a year after Prince, after Westminster started, he had been an Old Testament faculty member at, at Princeton. I don't know if he were independently wealthy or if he knew his days were numbered and he was going to go anyway. But I, I do think that, that that issue of retirement and pension was, was a big factor. And I think Machen, Machen understood that and, and didn't hold any grudges about that, even though he would have loved to have had them. It's also clearly a, a big factor also in the in this breaking off of the what became the Orthodox Presbyterian Church, why so many right. ministers didn't come with. Right. Now, I'd be remiss if I didn't ask you, Daryl, about uh, Jim Scott's recent article in the Westminster Theological Journal that suggests or seems to try to build a historical case that Edwin Ryan's book, The Presbyterian Conflict, was actually mostly written by J. Gresham Machen. Have you seen this piece? I haven't yet. I, I've heard about it, and I think I saw an excerpt from it somewhere, or, or, or I, I, you know, in manuscript or something. Um, but I need I need to see it. I talked to Jim a little bit too, maybe a year ago when I was through town for Christian Ed Christian Education Committee meetings, um, and and I've heard uh, reactions. People saying it, he, he makes a very strong case, and I've heard other people saying that that wouldn't hold up in court. So mm. I don't know. <laughs> well, this has clearly been a conspiracy theory that's been floating around for a little while. I think I heard it from you uh, once uh, over a cigar one day. Right. But um, could you uh, just explain a little bit of the plausibility here for people before we before we uh, close up? Sure. Well, Ed Ryan was a uh, was Machen's uh, defense counsel actually during his trial in 1935. Um, uh, had studied with Machen at Princeton Seminary, um, came out, he, he, he was a general secretary for the uh, board of Westminster Seminary um, so, and, and a minister in the, in the Orthodox Presbyterian Church. And in 1940, he wrote a book called The Presbyterian Conflict, which was a history of the, the events, many of which we've been talking about here. And, um, and it's, it's also a very useful book, the OPC has has reprinted it, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and um, it's useful for the the historical documents that he has at the back. There are about forty different uh, documents as part of the appendices, which are very useful for for looking at the way the Presbyterian controversy played out. But Machen was also working on a book at the end of his life. The manuscripts are still there in in the um, in the archives at, at Westminster Seminary, and um, and he was in some ways talking about the controversy or the conflict in Protestantism. So I believe, and I haven't read Jim's article, but I believe he's arguing that, that Ryan, in effect, took that idea and maybe even took more than the idea 
in producing this book. Um, mm. But and that's probably as far as I should go since I haven't <laughs> read the article, and I don't want to. I don't want to do an uh, an injustice to Jim's. Uh, argument. Sure. Well, we encourage people to go read the article for themselves, the latest issue of the Westminster <laughs> Theological Journal. Daryl, I do want to thank you so much for taking the time to join us. We always enjoy having you and um, having you share with us uh, so much of what you know about Presbyterianism. We really appreciate your time today. Well, thanks, Camden. I do enjoy it. So thanks for having me. And sure. good to talk to you, Jason. Yeah, good to, good to hear from you. Yeah, we do want to uh, let people know. Uh, Jason, can you can we point people uh, to a website so they can read more uh, about RUF International, especially at Texas A&M, maybe find an update about what you've been up to? Yeah, yeah, sure. Uh, you can always email me, jason.pickard at ruf, not R-U-F-I, just ruf.org. Uh, and I don't have a, my own personal website, but there is a national website. If you just go to www.ruf.org forward slash international, I think that'll get you in the right spot. That's a Reformed University Fellowship, which is a, a ministry of the Presbyterian Church of America. In America, sorry. <laughs> Getting my uh, eras of Presbyterianism mixed up here. Of course, uh, Daryl's available online. You can, find, uh, you can find him at Hillsdale College at hillsdale.edu, but most of you probably know him from oldlife.org. He's always blogging there uh, several times a week, and uh, there's always a big comment thread, so if you'd like to participate, visit online at oldlife.org and follow along. You can find us online at reformedforum.org. There you'll find information about all of our programs, as well as everything that we're up to including new programs that have been uh, spun up most recently. So visit us there and subscribe and listen and provide your feedback by mailing us at mail at reformedforum.org tweeting us at reformedforum. We want to thank everybody for listening, and we hope you join us again next time on Christ the Center. <laughs>